kind of appalling to me that I would bring my phone up here, but I was told there's no clock. And I'm pretty sure I'll never look at this again until we're done. So you might have to say, would you sit down or some such thing. I'm always a little bit loath to get up after we've had a magnificent time worshiping the Lord like that because I don't want to break it by talking, but that's too late now. So you might as well have a sermon. Just stay in Psalm 16. Again, that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. I need a bigger pulpit next time. <laughs> We're saturated in our world with the idea that we need more. It doesn't really matter what it is, we need more. Have you noticed how many storage facilities have gone up? It's like a curse on our land. It, it tells us about ourself. Um, something's going wrong with the idea that we need more. Every pastor, every pastor I know, Certainly myself and my friend, Pastor John, there's never enough people. Um, you could always use a few more. Apparently, there's never enough money. If you're a billionaire, it's not enough. Uh, there's not enough uh, emotion, not enough experiences. Um, it's just we're told, and not just through advertising, but our whole culture is discontent. We need more. We start out in the morning and wonder, what will we do today that will make us feel good? And if that happens, we feel good, then we're, we, we, we feel good maybe at the end of the day. But it's rare to find someone that's just content with where they are, who they are, and what they are. But the Bible teaches that we just read, and um, I believe it was somewhere, something Paul said was it Timothy, First Timothy? that a godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness without contentment um, doesn't get you anything. But the godliness with contentment is great gain. In fact, Jesus said that um, in John 10.10 10, that he has come to give us life and to give it more abundantly. He didn't say he'd come to give us more abundant possessions. He said he came to give us more abundant life. The secret of that abundance is contentment. So if you're wanting more, you'll never understand the abundance that Jesus promised and that Jesus gives. But the secret of the, of the abundant life, which I've called the great life, they're the same thing, um, is contentment. Psalm 16 fleshes, fleshes that out. We saw um, in the fall uh, the foundation of a great life, and I'll just go through the points again. Verse 1, the a great life is founded on trust in God, in resting in God, verse 2. The great life is found, is an obedient life, verse 3. The great life takes on the value system of God, not the value system of the world or of the flesh. And then uh, verse 4 was the idea that you could lose the great life by trading for a lesser life. That was the sermon past. I'm not going to re-preach it, but that's the foundation for this sermon today. If that is not true in your life, you will not live a great life. You, you will live some other kind of life, and it may be a pleasurable life. Um, it might be a rich life, but you will not live a great life. You will not live it a, a, an abundant life if it is not founded on God. 
And for us, we know that that foundation comes through Jesus Christ. I know that you know that, so I'm not going to belabor that point. As we come to verse 5, thank you for reading this. Thank you for that whole worship service. Actually, I thought, you know, I don't really need to preach now because we've sang and we've read it all uh, that I plan on preaching. But maybe this will help focus it as we look at the word and exposit it. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. This verse says that circumstances cannot change your contentment. So contentment is the secret of the abundant life and the great life. So what if you lose your contentment? Well, you lose your, the abundance of that abundant life, the experience of that abundant. But we are so used to being controlled in our thoughts by the circumstances we have. And we are, um, we've been groomed in that by the commercial world and by marketing and all that. We've been groomed to not be content with what we have, which erases in ourself the experience of, of the great life. By the way, I called this the experience uh, of the great life. Uh, two things about experience. The world, we have been taught the idea of experience, and I'm going to prove that in a moment, but experience is not um, events. We think of experience. That was a great experience. We'll say something like that. But experience is not events. Remember Elijah in his cave? Uh, he, there were some uh, great events, a fire that burned rocks, I think, an earthquake, um, uh, a hurricane. All those came through, and God was not in them. God is not in events. God doesn't show up. Um, God is. We show up. But God doesn't show up. He's not in events. What was he in? A still, small voice. When, when Elijah heard the still small voice, he covered himself with his, with his hoodie and he went out and fell on his face because that was God, just a still small voice. And that's, it's not an event, is it? A still small voice, but that's where God is. And so in your life, if you're looking for events, you'll be greatly disappointed because most of the time it's going to work, it's doing the laundry, it's, doing the, it's getting the groceries, it's fixing a meal and eating a meal, it's hanging out together. That's most of your life. So if that's not the experience uh, of, of a godly life, then you're missing it, because that's most of what you do. Think about when you, want, when you have a big plumbing problem. You want an experienced plumber, right? You don't want someone that just decided that morning that he'd like to be a plumber. You want an experienced plumber. Now, does that mean someone that's been to a great plumbing convention? where 5,000 plumbers have, have met and sung the beauty of plumbing together in, in harmony and have felt really, really good about pipes and then have gone home? Is that the kind of experience you want when you get an experienced plumber? Do you want a guy that goes down uh, to the hardware store and uh, just sits there and he looks at, at the different pipes you can get and the connectors and, and the faucets and just, just really just meditates on those things and and uh, is just blessed by being in that hardware store. Is that the kind of, no, you want a guy that comes out and he looks at the situation or you explain it to him and he says, well, this is what we have to do. He can look at a pipe and he can tell if it's a half inch or a three quarter inch. You know, I'm, I'm a man and I'm supposed to be able to do that, but I can't. And, you know, I go to the hardware store and they say, well, what size is it? I don't know, it's about that big. <laughs> That's what I do. I'm not an experienced plumber, though I've done some. 
So that's what you want, right? That's the experience. The experience is the day-to-day. He got under the sink, and he used his wrench. He went to the hardware store, and he figured it out, and he, and he brought it to the house or his house or wherever it is, and he put it together, and he knows how to put the glue in there so it doesn't leak. Uh, he knows how long to cut it and what connector to use. And he does delight in all that, I hope. Um, but the, what, what you want is to know that he's done it and that he can do it for you. And that's the experience we have of the great life. It's not the great events. It's not the, it's not the emotion. Emotion is the next one, the emotion of a great life. When I come back in August, we'll talk about that. But today we're not talking about emotion. We're not talking about event. We're talking about abundant life this morning, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow. Um, Whatever you're doing, you're experiencing the abundant life. So that said, circumstances cannot change your abundant life. Yahweh is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These two verses are all uh, linked together, and they're based on what happened in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. So I want to read, I don't think you need to turn there with me, but maybe write down the verses so you can look at the context later. But Numbers 18.20, Then Yahweh said to Aaron, by the way, when I see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, my mind says Yahweh, so it will come out my mouth. So it's it's the personal name of God. I think that when they wrote the Bible, they intended for us to say Yahweh, but we translate it Lord so we won't uh, accidentally take his name in vain. But um, it's too late if that's going to happen. So what verse was it? Chapter 18, verse 20. Then Yahweh said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor any or own any portion among them. So he's saying this to Aaron, the high priest there. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. So there's two of our... Well, one of the words in the ESV, Uh, by the way, let me tell you right now, the NASB says that Yahweh is is the portion of my inheritance. ESV says Yahweh is my chosen portion. NASB is Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance. Why do the two versions differ? Because they're both right. There's three aspects of the two words. One is a portion. The second is a chosen portion. Uh, portion and the third is the inheritance. So both the versions are right. You have to meld them together. So as we look at these, we'll see those three words. Um, Again, he says to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land or own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Then Deuteronomy chapter 10, 8 through 9, he expands that out not just to Aaron, but to the entire tribe of Levi. At that time, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh to serve him and to bless in his name all this day. So that was what they were to do. Verse 9, Therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. Yahweh is his inheritance, just as Yahweh your God spoke to him. Now I can imagine uh, if I was of the tribe of of Levi saying to myself, well, or to somebody else, that's a ripoff. They all get this land and, and we don't. We get God. Don't we all get God? So we're getting nothing. But it's intended to be a blessing. Actually, Joseph, I believe it's in chapter 49 of Genesis, not Joseph, but Jacob, um, had 
punished Levi and Simeon by telling them that they would be dispersed throughout Israel. So when Jacob said that, it was a punishment. Not really a curse, but a punishment. God turned that punishment into, the, into a blessing that we're going to think about this morning. And also, you're going to think about it in your small groups as you ponder this concept a little bit more. So what does that mean, then, if they don't have any, any tribal land of their own? Now, by the way, that doesn't mean they couldn't own a house with a plot of land. They couldn't have a farm. It didn't mean that. It just means that Levi did not have a plot of land in Israel that was theirs. There is no... Um, uh, uh, I, can't, I don't know what to call it. No plot of land that's Levi. Uh, there's Judah, there's Issachar, there's all, uh, Reuben, but there's no Levi because they were scattered throughout the land. So what's the blessing on that? Um, first of all, uh, and this is the answer to the question. I realize they left some blanks, so that's good. Um, you always, wherever you are, you're always home. When you don't have a, an allotted place, wherever you are, you're home. Have you noticed that when you've traveled, maybe? You've gone to a church somebody, somewhere else, and you go in, like I feel here, that I feel like I'm home. We'll go through the worship service, we're worshiping the same God. We're brothers and sisters. I really, truly do feel at home. Have you felt that? You go somewhere? And maybe if you go somewhere and you don't feel at home, you're a little bit skeptical about the, the uh, value of that particular gathering. But wherever you go, Romania, I felt home. In Mexico, I felt at home. Here, I feel at home. Everywhere I go where the people of God meet, I feel at home, and I'm, I'm sure so do you, uh, because Yahweh is the portion of your inheritance. By the way, now that we've seen that this, was, this promise was to Levi, it wasn't to Judah. There's a sense in which David had no right to claim this. This was the right given to Levi. But if you remember the story of, of David, whose ancestral home is Bethlehem, he didn't live there very long. Um, he was chased out, and then he lived in, in, uh, in different places, ended up in Jerusalem, but he didn't live in his tribal home, and neither did Jesus, whose tribal home was also Bethlehem, the son of David. He lived up in <clears throat> Nazareth, and then he got kicked out of there. So both David and, and Jesus, and you can say um, that Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance, uh, rather than uh, whatever the place is here, that's not the portion of my inheritance, but Yahweh himself. We just sang that um, a moment ago. He's the portion of our inheritance. I've got to move on because 35 minutes is not enough time for me, so I'm going to try to, to move through this smoothly and quickly. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance. He's the chosen portion. This is where I need to read from Joshua, because you see the idea of the choosing. This is Joshua chapter 18, verses 6 through 7. You shall describe the land in seven divisions, and this is Joshua speaking, and bring the descriptions here to me. I will cast lots for you before Yahweh your God. For the Levites have no portion among you, because the priesthood of Yahweh is their inheritance. So that's it, he brings that in as well. But he says, I will cast lots, so they'll come back with, uh, with the land all divided up on paper, and then uh, Joshua, along with Eleazar, the high priest, would cast lots, and that would determine who got what piece of land. So when it says that Yahweh is the, his chosen portion, the chosen portion going back to the place where they got their inheritance, they didn't choose. They didn't say, except for maybe Reuben 
and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they chose their part on the other side of the Jordan, but for those who were in Israel, the promised land, uh, they didn't choose. Joshua threw the lots, and the proverb tells us that we throw the lot in the, in the lap, and lots are like dice or something like that, but God chooses the outcome. So as the lot fell, God chose the outcome for each of the tribes. So their land was chosen, but not by them. Did you know that you were chosen? Ephesians chapter 1. Um, hope you spend a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 1 because it talks about you. Uh, you. In Christ, you have been chosen before the foundation of the earth. What was your part of that? <laughs> For the foundation of the earth. You were chosen before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless before him, in love having been predestined to be adopted as a son. That means having all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of the, only, of the truly born son, which was Jesus, through Jesus Christ to himself. God chose you to himself to have relationship with you. Why did he do it? According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, freely bestowed in the beloved who redeemed you with his blood for the forgiveness of your trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on you. Does it get any better than that? Yeah, the Holy Spirit illuminated you, he regenerated you, he indwelt you, and he sealed you unto the day of repentance. You can't get out of it. Jude chapter one, or Jude one, says that you have been, you're being kept by Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, he ends it by saying, he's able to keep us and to present us faultless before the throne. How good is that? Do you marvel in that every day? Don't argue about it. How glorious that you're chosen. I was age four when I came to Christ. It's undoubtedly that I was chosen. Some of you came later, and as you look through this, through the, the, the history of your life, you see that God was moving there. Even through all the negativity, God was leading there to the point where you became his child. To be chosen of God, there can't be anything better. There is no choice in this world made for you that is better than to be chosen by God. Because that's how you know um, that's going to work out. Because God is the one behind it. Chosen, and then inheritance. You didn't invent the church. You didn't invent the gospel. Did you know that? Uh, it came to you. It's your inheritance. It goes back a 2,000 years. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, I think, verse 15 or 16, where God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the, the head of the serpent. Um, the gospel came to you. We can't change it. We can't soften it. We can't make it more beautiful. It already is. We have to admit that we're sinners and that we're in need of a savior. But we have it in Jesus Christ. We inherit it. Somebody brought you the gospel. Or maybe the Holy Spirit told you as you read the word of God what it was. Every story is different. But you've inherited eternal life. You've inherited the abundant life. Um, and that's a great thing. So that's your inheritance. How does that work out in our life? I want you to think about that some more in your small groups. But one of the things it does is it frees us from possessions. Again, the abundant life is not abundance of possessions. I wonder if you're free of your possessions or do your possessions free you? I think, again, the, the abundance of, of uh, storage units says that our possessions possess us. Have you ever known somebody that had to downsize because of their life situation, can't let go of anything? 
Their possessions possess them. Ever see anybody fight over an inheritance? They're possessed by possessions. But when Yahweh is the portion, the chosen portion of our inheritance, none of this matters. Are you aware the day is going to come when you're going to have to let every nickel go? Every bit of memorabilia? Every precious thing? And we, when we come back in glory with Jesus Christ, you're not going to repossess your stuff. Are you aware of that? You're going to just, it's going to be junk. When you lived in a place where the, where the streets are gold, well, that's actually the new Jerusalem, but heaven's probably even more glorious. Um, you'll know your stuff that you spent so much time enamored with is just junk. Let Yahweh be. You know, and here's the thing. And this is what I think Yahweh is trying to tell Levi. You won't have to worry about it. If you are living in step with me, I'll take care of you. You don't need to be grounded anywhere. You can go throughout. You can minister anywhere in the land of Israel, and I'll take care of you because I am the portion of your inheritance. If I don't take good care of you, then I'm not much of, a, of, a, of an inheritance, am I? So God is promising them that he would take care of them, and he'll take care of you. Maybe not the way you would take care of yourself, but it'll be better. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. Now, the word portion goes with the chosen inheritance, and it goes with cup. So Yahweh is the portion of my cup. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's the cup. He means he's what's in the cup. We can see what it means in, well, if you look back, it's across the page uh, with my Bible. I, I use two Bibles because this one, the ESV, which I know you use, is too small, and my NASB, the words are bigger. My bifocals get lost in the small one. But across the page in chapter 11, uh, verse, let's start with 5. Yahweh tests the righteous, and his soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. It's the exact same phrasing we have here. The portion of our cup is Yahweh. What's the portion of the cup of the wicked, of the unbeliever? It's sulfur, scorching wind, and fire. Now, I'm sure that when you read that or you hear that, you think immediately of hell. And yes, that is a description of hell, but it's a description of life before hell. There's a continuum, I hope, in your life from this point until uh, glory, both now and forever. Uh, in Psalm 23, um, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where's death? It's in there somewhere. It doesn't matter. There's a continuum between God's um, uh, part of our life right now and us going into glory. I think for many people, um, we will step into the glory, and we won't know we're actually dead until we kind of figure it out. Oh, you know. Life got really good all of a sudden. What's going on? But there's a continuum. There's also a continuum into hell. You've known people who were already in hell. In, um, in fact, uh, well, just think about it. If uh, many people that don't know Christ, whose life is lived in the flesh, um, when they go to bed at night, there's a fire that burns, isn't there? There's a fire of anger, fire of lust, a fire of greed, fire of bitterness, 
I hope when you go to bed, what's in your cup is the Holy Spirit and what's in your cup is the fruit of the Spirit and that you go to God and that whatever he is giving, which is glorious, um, is just flowing into your life and through it. That you don't go to bed with fire. You've put that away long ago. This leads into the next uh, phrase, which is, you hold my lot. This says, the New American Standard says, you uphold my lot. Now, the word hold and uphold, lot, by the way, is related to the lot we saw in Joshua, where they threw the lots. It, we, that's where the word lottery comes from. It's the idea of, um, it's kind of a gambling thing. They did it at the foot of the cross uh, for the close of Jesus. Uh, so what's he saying? He, it's, it's, um, it's happening now. You hold my lot. The Hebrews, by the way, I'll give you a little Hebrew lesson. The Hebrews don't have time in, built into their verbs. They don't have tense like, like English does, like most languages do. Um, instead, uh, they have action that is either accomplished or action that's, that's open. It's still going on. So accomplished is usually translated past tense, and open is uh, usually either translated present or future. So this is open. So the reason I tell you that is that he's not talking here about when they cast the lot way back in the book of Joshua that God was there directing it. He was, but that's not his point here. His point is that God is still doing something with the lot. Now remember, he's already said that it's, I'm not really talking about land. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about God himself, but the word hold and uphold, the grammar's wrong for that. It, it could be right. There's just no evidence that it is right. So that some versions, and I, I lean this way after looking at it, uh, have the word, um, you enlarge my lot, or you broaden my lot. And there's uh, a phrase in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 24, Exodus 34, 24, where... Um, Moses, Yahweh speaking, Moses is talking about it. For I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders. And no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before Yahweh your God. So he's talking about if they will just be obedient in this particular thing about when they are obedient to go up to the feast, that God will enlarge their borders. Well, he's already given them their borders. So what does that mean, that he'll enlarge their borders? I think it means that he will make it more productive. He will make it a place where it seems broader and broader. If you could put up the PowerPoint slide now. Um, this is, this is uh, if you can see that V as a baseball field, not a baseball diamond, but you know in a baseball field, the borders uh, go on forever. They diverge forever. Uh, if you could hit the ball far enough, um, it gets easier and easier to hit it in the, in the, within the borders as you go farther out. And this is a picture of, of our of life as Christians. When you come to Christ, it seems like there's all kinds of things you have to give up. I've mentioned a number of those things on there. And many people, they don't want to come to Christ. Maybe it may be someone in this room that you don't want to come to Christ because of what you have to give up. And it's true. There are things when you go through that gate. Now, the fact is that you can't give them up. You're attached to them. Even if you try, they come flying back to you. You can't give them up. You've got to go through the gate first of faith in Christ. We don't come to Christ giving up things. We come to Christ having faith in him, who then begins to cleanse us of all these things. And as you go through life, um, the, but your boundaries expand. You want to do less and less those things that are on the, 
on the screen that are on the outside of the boundaries. And you want to do more and more of those things that fill. Now, probably up on the screen, it doesn't look crowded, but I purposely made the middle part crowded and the outside part less crowded because your life becomes so full uh, that there's just not enough time uh, for all the experience that God has for you. And it's those things that are so healthy and clean and good and joyful, the fruit of the Spirit. On the outside, um, if you're living for, let's just say, uh, the, the use of drugs, as time goes by, by the time, you see how constricted it gets on the outside? By the time you get up a certain point of having drugs be the number one thing in your life, that's all that's in your life. It consumes your life. All those other things, they're just totally meaningless. You have nothing inside uh, the field, but everything becomes more and more constricted till by the end of your life, that's all it is, whatever it is. Could be bitterness, could be um, anything that you want to hang on to, that's sin. It consumes your life and becomes everything. The believer is the one whose life can be full. And uh, that's the abundance that Jesus is talking about. Verse 8. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. The lines means the boundaries. The boundaries of his property. The boundaries of his life. The boundaries of your life. The word lines is an interesting word. It, um, it, it Basically, it means ropes, and then it came to mean bonds. You tie somebody up or you tie a goat up uh, with a rope, and then it came to mean boundaries. So you can see that just in the word, bond and boundaries are the same. Boundaries hem you in. The boundaries on this slide, in a sense, hem you in. There's places that you can't go as a believer, and that uh, eventually you don't want to go. But they hem you in, but here's the beauty of it. By the way, B was you were always full, then C was you were always growing in number one, and now we're in, in uh, point two, um, which is uh, our boundaries bless, your boundaries bless you. Your boundaries bless you. Now it's opposite of what the world thinks. The world thinks that our boundaries hem us in and make us less, but the reality is that our boundaries uh, bless us. They, they make us full, they don't make us empty. Um, and they make our lives free. For example, I got married uh, 39 years ago, and that was a boundary. At that point on, um, all other women were off limits to me, and I'm all off limits to all other women. Do you realize how freeing that is? Never again do I have to wonder, does she like me? Doesn't matter. She can like me or dislike me. It has no effect in my life. I'm totally free of wondering what any other woman thinks. I've got enough on my plate wondering what my woman thinks. But I don't have to do it. All that's gone. If you're single, um, that's one of the blessings of getting married, is that um, everything else is just immaterial. It doesn't matter. So that's a, it's a very strict boundary, very small. But it just opens up life and makes you so free. And you can think through boundaries, and I want you to do that. In your small groups, you'll do that. Think about boundaries that you have in your life that actually make you free. Uh, maybe one other one, because it's always a hot point. Uh, biblically, women are not um, elders. Um, you just don't see a, it, It's always male, and you don't see a, a woman elder. You see them in just about every other role, but not as elder. So biblically, a woman cannot be an elder. 
What, how free is that? I mean, who wants to be an elder? I mean, what a terrible job. John was saying, we were talking about this last night, and he says, have you ever seen a happy elder? Ever watch elders come out of an elder meeting? Anyway, so all women are free of that. You don't have to have that job. That's glorious. I hope that you're just reveling in that fact, that uh, if anybody wants you to be an elder, you can say, no, I don't need to be an elder. Lisa used to tell people that would tell her she needs to do some ministry things. She said, my husband doesn't want me to do that. So <laughs> she, her husband didn't even know, but <clears> that <throat> was a great freedom for her in that restriction to be, um, to, to be in that role with me as the head. It's all glorious. So the lines, uh, so it ends up being that, that the boundaries that constrict us and restrict us end up to be a blessing in our lives. Think that through. You've got lots of time. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is the next phrase. Oh, one more thing before I move on to that next point is that notice how it says, um, the lines have fallen for me. So almost inadvertently, almost accidentally. So a lot of times that seems what your circumstances are. You fell into these circumstances. Well, you never fell into it without God. Just like the boundaries never fell without God. Uh, your circumstances, if you are a child of God, involve God. He's there um, in those circumstances with you. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So. In, in uh, NASB, it says that my heritage is beautiful to me. And that idea of to me is in there. Here it just says the word my, but it's beautiful to me. In other words, his heritage may not be beautiful to somebody else, but to him it is beautiful. And I want to think just a moment about your heritage, because this run, runs contrary uh, to the world around us. Um, you may not have a beautiful heritage. You may have had parents that were horrible. Uh, you may have um, had neglect, abuse, um, all kinds of pains. Maybe it was a teacher that abused you in some way or, or neighbors or friends or siblings. Uh, in your past, you may have had traumatic, painful, horrible things. It's not beautiful. Those things aren't. And see, what the world wants to do is for you to work through all that. Um, the biblical point of view of all that is that God was there during that time if you're a child of God, even if it was before um, you came to Christ. God was there, and he was forming you into what you are today. So what I want you to think about is what, what negative things in the past have made something beautiful in your life today? What negative things in the past? Are you strong? Is that because of the way you were raised? Are, do you have compassion? Is that because of the pain you've been through? Are you humble? Humble is a thing in our culture. Maybe it's always been that way. Uh, humility is something that is frowned on and is despised. Uh, people love proud people, believe it or not. Um, just watch and you will see that people love proud people and people want to be proud. People want to have something to be proud about. People want to be proud of their pastor, proud of their church, proud of their children, proud, proud of their parents. But the word humble, um, at least it, the Hebrew word humble, is really the word to be crushed, to be pressed down, to be oppressed. So it, that oppression, that crushing, it makes you into the thing that God loves. God loves a humble person. Jesus himself was humble. The Father is humble. He's not here saying, hey, look at me. 
Um, he's, he's really behind the scenes. He's here, but you won't know that if you're not looking. So that humility, even if it's something that crushed you, uh, comes out to be something that is solid gold in the kingdom of God. Your personal history beautifies your life. Again, the world doesn't believe that. But the, your personal history beautifies your life. My heritage is beautiful to me. Number three, you have a personal guide. This is verse seven. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night, my, also my heart instructs me. I love this verse, and I don't have the time to tell you everything I love about it, but first of all, I bless. That's, that's an open thing. It's what you do as a child of God. It's what you do as you're living the abundance life. It's part of your experience is that you bless God. Now, what does bless God mean? It, it's, it's, it's huge. But just some ideas of what it means. It means you speak and show him appreciation. When you bless a person, I'm hoping that the, the word of God exposited is a blessing to you. Um, I, I never know if that's fact or not, but I hope it is. But when you're blessing God, you speak and you show appreciation. It's a thankfulness. You give God credit for whatever it is. He's going to give God credit for um, his counsel. So I bless Yahweh is what you do. Make sure that's just a default in your life that you bless uh, God uh, through Jesus Christ. Um, and I, uh, because he counsels me. Now, the word counsel has been ruined a little bit by the world around us. Biblically, counsel is not therapy. I know that God's a great therapist, I'm sure, but that's not this word. It's not the idea of therapy, come in and talk something out and you know, say, you're, you're all right, you're, you're doing okay. That's not this word. This word is somewhat the opposite. This word is that basically um, that Yahweh tells me how to live the abundant life, how to live the great life, um, how to live the kind of life that, that um, is in step with him. We have the Holy Spirit to teach us. We have the Word of God in its fullness to teach us. We have the body of Christ. We have pastors and teachers uh, to teach us. Um, all those things that God teaches in all those ways. He says, I bless Yahweh, but here's the thing. And I, anybody that's been a counselor knows that people come in and want you to fix them, but they don't want to change anything. I hope that's not you. If it is, you need to stop that. If you want to be, if you want to be fixed, uh, then you need to change because something's wrong. And it's probably in you. It's not in God. Most people that come, if people... I quit doing marriage counseling because the couples want to come in for me to fix the other person. But you, you can't fix them for one thing. The second thing is, what, what about you? What's going on with you? Now, God will counsel you, and he'll tell you this needs fixed. You need to stop this. You need to do this. And so your attitude is, I bless Yahweh when he tells me that what I'm doing is not right, and I need to stop it. Do you always bless him when he tells you that? Sometimes you resist. Remember James chapter 1? you've been in the faith for a while, you know this verse, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. This is verse 5. Who gives to all generously and without reproach. So he's saying if you ask him for wisdom, he'll give. He gives generously and it will be given to him. The wisdom. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
being a double-minded man and stable in his ways. So what's he saying? He's saying if you want counsel from God, then you have to do it. You have to follow it. And that's the blessing. If you, if you ask counsel for God and, you, and he gives it to you and you don't do it, that's very dangerous. And you, you then go up down a path that um, God has not ordained and will not be the great life. But it's glorious. But this other thing is also wonderful. The next phrase, which is, in the night also my heart instructs me. So this is in the night. So, and it's also, also, so he instructs me, he counsels me, tells me how I need to live, and then he does that also even in the night. Now there's a shadow there, meaning in the dark times, the valley of the shadow of death. So in the shadows he gives us, but it's, it's he means in the night, because the word translated heart, heart's a good translation, but it's actually kidneys. Now your kidneys don't instruct you, do they? Yes, they do, in the night. You go to bed, you're wrestling through something, you wake up in the morning and the answer's right there before you. I hope that's happened to you. That's God at work through your kidneys. I mean, the whole idea is kind of ludicrous. In other words, your subconscious is at work. And who knows, you know, they now know now that our internal organs are way smarter than we give them credit for. And they try to teach us and we often don't listen. Um, but it, my kidneys instruct me in the night. I'm sound asleep, I'm not doing anything. And uh, this is something added to his counsel. And the word for instruct is actually the word for warn. Like he warned the, the wise men twice, or they warned the wise men not to go home through Jerusalem uh, at Bethlehem, and he, and he warned Jake, Joseph to take his family and skedaddle to Egypt. So he warns us uh, in the night, but sometimes not with dreams, but just you wake up and you know the answer. That's God at work uh, through your subconscious, through your kidneys. Isn't that kind of cool? that the Bible talks about that, something they're just now discovering. Verse 8, so that is, uh, um, you have your own personal guide. We can count on instruction in our life. And then, um, you can count on personal instruction, I guess, I don't know. I've got too many notes. I've found that it's easier if I have less notes, less is more. All right, verse 8. I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You have a personal bodyguard. You have a personal counselor. That's the main thing. And you have a personal bodyguard. I have set Yahweh always before you. How in the world do you do that? God's immense. You can't move him. He's, and he's everywhere. How can you move him? Well, you move. You realign. So I know that's this point. Um, you have to have a daily realignment uh, with God. And the word... Setting him always before you is, you can see it in, in Isaiah chapter 49. Verse 16. Behold, I inscribed you, that's, he's talking about Jerusalem, on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. So that's the same phrase, the continually before you, me, that your walls. So it doesn't mean that they just go around wherever he goes. I mean, God's everywhere. It's mean they're always on my mind. Your walls, Jerusalem, are always on my mind, which I think that that's also true of us, that he's inscribed us on his hands, and we're always on his mind. And the idea is that God, Yahweh, God, Jesus Christ, is always on our mind. He's always before us. We're always following him. And then when he's always on our mind, he's always before us, he's at our right hand, which kind of doesn't make sense physically, but since God is everywhere and he's not big, he's before us, and he's at our right hand. So what does that mean? Two things. When someone is at your right hand, that's the highest position of honor. If you're married, I hope 
that your spouse is, has the highest honor of anybody else in the world. Uh, your children, children you're commanded, and I hope you just naturally honor your parents. Parents honor, honor your children, um, honor different people around you. But the highest place of honor is reserved for God. It's God that's on your right hand. He's the highest place of honor. And when he's continually before you, when you're um, bringing your mind always back to, to Yahweh, your God, to Jesus, uh, your Savior and your God, um, he's there at your right hand, that highest place of honor. And when he's at the highest place of honor, you're completely safe. You're completely safe. Because he is at my right hand, um, I will not be shaken. That means that uh, nothing can really harm you. Remember Jesus said that? That not a hair of your head will be harmed even if you go through the fire? Nothing can harm you if he's there. Because he's Almighty God, and he's love, and he loves you. He chose you. So you're completely safe. Now, it doesn't look that way, does it? Because all kinds of things that are painful and harmful and evil come into our lives. So I want to leave you with this thought. Any harm that comes to us comes through the loving and powerful hands of a holy father. Everything that comes into your life to harm you comes through the hand, not by the hand, but through the hand of a powerful and loving father. Father, may this be our experience. You, really, as we sang earlier, you are our experience. And that in that experience, life opens up, becomes abundant, becomes full. Riches that the world can't even fathom, doesn't understand when they see it. Just gathering in this place, the love that's here, the worshipful hearts, the kindness, the willingness to wrestle through disagreements. It's part of the glory of living the abundant life. Thank you for this place. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for choosing us, holding us, inscribing us in your hands and holding us there and making us perfectly safe. In Jesus' name, amen.